0: Last week we studied the fourth chapter, and uh, now we're going to read both together, but look at the fifth chapter. Now, bear in mind what Revelation 4 and 5 consists of. It is the theme of the book of Revelation pictured out for you in unforgettable terms. And the basic literal statement of these two pictures is the sovereignty of God. You remember the church lived in tempestuous times in the first century, similar to what we face today, though we don't face as harsher trials as they faced, from two great enemies in the first century. There was apostate Judaism that persecuted them and sided with Rome in their persecution up until uh, Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. And then thereafter was the beginning of 10 waves of ferocious persecution of the church for the next couple centuries, that it was normal, to go to church and think that you might not make it home, that you might wind up in the Colosseum uh, being eaten by lions or killed by gladiators or whatever. So there was ferocious persecution of the church in the first century, and so now John is writing this great epistle to these seven churches in uh, Asia Minor and to the whole church actually at large uh, to say Caesar claims global power. But there is a sovereign even over Caesar. That Caesar's throne is the greatest throne in the world, in the world. But there is a throne at the center of the universe. And Jesus sits on that throne and rules the Caesars and rules everything else. And nobody can touch a hair on your head, beloved little flock, without the will of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that thought is pictured out here in these two chapters. One other thing we need to point out is that uh, in the first century, there were two empires. Each empire was out to conquer the whole world. There was the empire of the kingdom of Christ, and there was the Roman Empire. And neither one of those empires would rest until the other had been defeated, annihilated, and and the kingdom of that empire spread throughout all the world. So they persecuted uh, the church... Because it was a threat to them. I guarantee you had the church not been a threat to Rome, Rome would never have persecuted them. But they understood something about that threat of this Christian empire. And so they tried to kill it out of existence. And of course the more they killed it, the more it grew. And eventually Rome crumbled and died and is off the scene. And all that's left is uh, tremendous ruins in the city of Rome. And that's the reason that persecution was so heavy. There was another king, one Jesus. There were two curioses of the first century, two that claimed that name. Remember the word curios is the the Greek word for lord, and it means more than lord, it means more than king, it means more than emperors. The word curios means king of kings and lord of lords, the authority above whom there is no other. That was Caesar's favorite name for himself. And so the Christians come along and declare a war on Caesar and say, you have to become a Christian by confessing that Jesus is curious, by confessing that there is one Lord, one king of kings, and he's not sitting in Rome. He is sitting at the right hand of God. So uh, cheer up, have hope, persevere. Don't worry about what's happening to you because Jesus who loves you is in control of everything. That's the point of of Revelation 4 and 5. Now, let's read these two chapters, and they comprise one picture. And remember now, use your imagination. As a matter of fact, the next several chapters flow out of these. The picture continues on in the sixth chapter and, and the following chapters. So use your imagination now, because that's what you're supposed to. These are figures of speech. And try to picture in your mind, the best you can, this wonderful, glorious picture that is being portrayed for you. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. In other words he's saying I want you to look at life from God's perspective now. Immediately I was in the spirit that is under the inspiration of the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchased for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture. Almost wears you out just thinking about it. Now, the focus of Revelation 4 was a throne. The focus of Revelation 5 is a book that's in the right hand of the throne, of the person sitting on the throne. Uh, the second focal point is the person that takes that book out of the right hand of the person sitting on the throne, and then the rest of this fifth chapter, as well as the sixth, etc., is about uh, what happens when the book is opened. So the first thing we need to know when we study the fifth chapter of Revelation is what does this book symbolize? Now, we don't we don't have to guess. Once again, as we've said so many times, the Most of the figures of speech in the book of Revelation are taken from somewhere else in the scriptures. And that's the case here. What what do we know about this book? Well, now notice, it is a book that uh, is written on the outside and on the inside. That is, there's nothing left out. Everything's included. There are no empty spaces left to be filled up by chance. That whatever this book is... It is full and nothing else can be added to it. It is sealed with seven seals, symbolizing that the contents of this book are undiscoverable by man's reason or experience and unknowable except by divine revelation. That the only way you can find out what's in a a sealed book is for somebody to open the seals so that you can see the content of the book now who is what is this book well let's look at some passages turn with me to exodus 32 and i want you to see a similar description not of a book which it doesn't really mean a book it means a scroll uh, but a description of something else written exodus 32 verses 15 and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And the tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, it's obvious what these two tablets are. They represent the law of God that God gave to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. And these two tablets were written on both sides. They were filled up with writing just like this scroll in Revelation 5. Which would lead us to believe that there's some connection between the scroll in Revelation 5 that's written on both sides. And these two tablets that were written on both sides. Now these two tablets were God's Standard of righteousness by which he evaluates all human actions. His law by which he determines whom he will bless and whom he will curse. And so in some way, this scroll uh, uh, is identified with this righteous standard of God's law by which he judges his enemies. All right. Now let's go a little farther and see if the Old Testament can be any more specific. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. And you see exactly where John got his symbol. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Then I looked, behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So here you have the identical picture from Ezekiel 2 in Revelation 5. What is this scroll now? This scroll is full of judgment. It is full of lamentations, mourning, and woe. In other words, this scroll that Ezekiel talks about, and that John refers to again, is a scroll about how God's righteous judgment brings lamentations, condemnation, destruction upon those who live in rebellion against Him, whether they are Romans, whether they are apostate Jews, or whether they are hypocritical apostate Christians whoever they may be, if it's an apostate church a tyrannical uh, empire, whoever it is, this is a book that is full of curses and condemnation in the application of God's law to the affairs of men. We could say that, uh, figuratively speaking, that Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 are in this book because those chapters contain a magnificent declaration of the specific blessings that God's going to bring upon those who are faithful to his word and, and curse after curse upon those who are unfaithful to it. So the scroll that is pictured here in the fifth chapter of the Revelation is a book of the administ- a, a, a record of how God is going to pour out his judgment upon those that rebel against his law. And it's written on both sides. It's full of every detail of history he is here every there's nothing left out there's nothing for man to fill in that the entire scope of history is to be found in this book and how God judges men according to his law it is in the right hand of the person sitting on the throne in that this book is a a, a, an administration of God's sovereignty it represents an administration of God's uh, government and God's rule. So in this book, is you, you have the record of how a sovereign God dispenses covenant curses and covenant blessings upon his enemies and upon his friends. That's the important thing to bear in mind as we read the rest of this chapter. In fact, look at chapter 6. You see it. And verse 1, and, and I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. These seals are starting to come open now. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice, come. And first there's a white horse. And then there is a black horse of, of, of war, a red horse of uh, war. And then there is a black horse of uh, death. And so out of this, uh, as the seals are open, the judgments of God begin to fall upon his enemies. Apostate Judaism, apostate Christian churches, uh, anti-Christian Rome... It goes throughout the 6th chapter, the 7th chapter, and notice how the 8th chapter begins. And when he broke the 7th seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And I saw the 7 angels who stand before the throne, and 7 trumpets were given them. So you see the progression. There is this book, has 7 seals. Then the seals are opened, and more and more judgments are are bestowed. And then when this last seal is opened, 7 more trumpets blast. So you see, much of the book of Revelation flows right out of the this book now to whom were god's covenant curses and god's covenant promises addressed to israel to the covenant people of god and you remember we said that the first part of the book of revelation is on how christ brings judgment to bear upon apostate jews upon Israel who had turned her back on the Lord and then the last part of the book of Revelation on how Christ eventually destroys the great Roman anti-Christian empire for persecuting Christ but now these curses are coming out of this book in the right hand of this sovereign God upon his apostate church upon those who rebel against him and refuse to listen uh, to give heed to his word now There is a great problem, however, and that is somebody has got to open this book. Not just anybody can do it. The person has to have the authority and the character to open this book or the contents will never be known and the contents will never be administered. And the enemies of God's church will never be judged. And there will never be a distinction between good and evil in human life. And life will be hell. So, notice the big point it makes. Verse uh, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven... Or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly. I mean, you can sympathize with him if you're using your imagination. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, remember, this is the administration of God's decrees. This is the administration of God's covenant curses and promises upon the peoples of this earth. But it has to be opened before anything can happen like a perfume bottle a perfume bottle won't do you any good unless you open the bottle and the same is true here this book has got to be opened these curses and blessings must be administered or else the church doesn't have any future and caesar wins after all but nobody is in a position to open this book nobody among all creation is worthy to open it and john who's writing this, is crying like a baby. He's weeping greatly. I want somebody to write this book, but there's nobody worthy of even looking into it. What's going to happen to us? Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah and the root of David has overcome to open the book and its seven seals. So this angel is saying to John, I mean, an elder around the throne. Now, who are these elders? Remember over in verse four of chapter four, you had the throne of God in the center. And then these 24 smaller thrones around the throne that elders sat on 24, meaning of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles, of the New Testament, the entire church of God of the whole of Holy Scripture represented in these elders. They're sitting around the throne praising God. And one of these elders come and says to John the apostle, quit crying, don't weep anymore. There is somebody worthy. There's only one person worthy of opening the book and administering its contents. And that person is worthy because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Now, before we see why those two titles made this person worthy... Let's talk about these elders for a minute. Notice what these elders are pictured as doing in Revelation 4, Revelation 5. They're sitting around the throne at the feet of Jesus. They have white garments on. Their sins have been forgiven. They're marching in the train of Christ's triumph. They're living lives of joy, knowing that the victory belongs to Christ. They have crowns on their heads. They uh, are exercising dominion over themselves self-discipline over the church over the covenant community they take the crowns off they cast them at jesus feet because they recognize that that uh, anything good that they have they got from god and not from themselves they are singing these wonderful hymns of praise in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and now one of these elders presents jesus as the one that can open the book now before we go any farther i pray for all of us as elders That what these two chapters picture of elders will be pictured of us. That we will be people, men, in white clothes, with crowns, sitting at the feet of Jesus, singing his praises, presenting Christ as the only Savior and Sovereign of the world. But now, elders are representatives of the church. And there's not a double standard. What all Christians should be, elders must be. The point is, what is demanded of elders is demanded of Christians in terms of the Christian life. So my prayer is that what's true of these representatives of the church will also be true of all of us in the church. That we will wear white clothes, have crowns that we cast at Jesus' feet, and that we sing Christ's praises, and that we offer and present Christ to the world as the only one in the world who could be our Savior and our sovereign. So that is a great picture of these elders. Now, there's two things about this man, who is obviously Jesus, that uh, make him qualified to open this book, which means he's the only person that can take the decrees of God and cause them to happen. That he's the only one that can take this record of God's covenant curses and covenant blessings and cause them to come true. In the life of God's people and in the life of God's enemies. Now what qualifies him? Well, his first title is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. What a description. Uh, There is a piece of artwork in my house. When you come into the door, it's right to the right. And it was done by Carol Bomer. And uh, it is this uh, figurative presentation of the death of Christ. You see this big lion's face powerful lion beneath the lion is a lamb's head with blood streaming from its throat under the blood is the ten commandments so you see this great picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah who's also the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and pays the punishment that our law breaking deserves Now, where did Carol Bomer and John the Apostle get that imagery? Turn to Genesis 49. Here again, you see how the Old Testament explains the figures of the New. In Isaiah 49, it's coming toward the end of Jacob's life, and he calls his sons together to pronounce blessings upon them and their descendants for the future. It's really prophecies on what this God-inspired prophet and patriarch uh, foretells about his children and their descendants and he comes to verse eight in genesis 49 which is with reference to his son judah now you remember who judah was judah was the great 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 granddaddy of jesus so bear that in mind as you hear these words genesis 49 8 judah your brother shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies Or more literally, your hand shall seize your enemies by the throat. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his blood-red wine, I might say, and his robes in the blood of, gates, uh, of grapes. His eyes are full from, dull from wine, that is, darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, obviously, this is a reference, a messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that one of Judah's descendants... Will seize all of his enemies by the throat and destroy all of his enemies, like a great lion who shall couches down and waits for his enemies to come and then destroys them. At, to the point that in verse uh, last part of verse ten, and he shall and to him shall the obedience of the peoples come that he shall destroy the enemies of his people and the nations of the world shall bow in submission to him. And notice in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, what's a scepter? A scepter was what a king carried in his hand. It was a symbol of rule and of government and of authority. And it says here that this symbol of government and authority shall not depart from the family of Judah... And that nor shall this ruler's staff from between the feet of Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, who's Shiloh? Well, the word Shiloh means in Hebrew, the one to whom it belongs. The one to whom it belongs. So what it says here in verse 10, the scepter, the symbol of rule, shall not depart from the family of Judah until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there you have a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his conquering power over all of his enemies. And this is the lion from the tribe of Judah, who overcomes all of his enemies by death, resurrection, and ascension, and reigns supreme over them all. Whether it's apostate church or anti Christian Rome, Christ is is the governor, this lion of the tribe of Judah. And because he's conquered his enemies, he has the authority to open the book. But then you have another name for him. And that other name is the root of David. Now, that's an interesting phrase. The uh, book of Revelation closes with that phrase. In the 22nd chapter of Revelation, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the root of... An offspring of David. Now it's obvious what he means by saying I'm the offspring of David. Because Jesus was a descendant of David. And, and God had promised David that someday his kingly descendant would have a kingdom that would be universal and eternal. And uh, all conquering. But what is this to say that he's the root of David? The offspring of David came after David. The root of David was before David. David's origin... The source of David's life. And so this title represents the Son of God as being God Himself. That Jesus is not simply man, i.e., the offspring of David, but He's also God, i.e., the root of David, the origin of David's life, the origin of the life of all human beings, the origin of the life of everything that happens in the universe, the origin of every event, every detail, the root of David is the one Rome has to deal with. There wouldn't be a Rome. There wouldn't be a Judaism. There wouldn't be anything were it not for the cause and origin of everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see why he and he alone is worthy of opening this book and administering all of its contents. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah... The root of David has overcome, seized all of his enemies by the throat, destroyed them by his life, death, and resurrection, so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, there you see the two central elements of this vision. A book, and Christ is the only one worthy of administering it. Everything that goes on in life is the administration of whatever's in this book by the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the book out of the right hand of God, and he opened it. And whatever happens in your life, whatever happens in the life of the church, whatever happens to the enemy in the life of the enemies of church, it's it's Christ unfolding what was in that book. And it says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, that's the cherubim from chapter four, and the elders, a lamb closely identified with the throne so closely identified with the throne as we'll see later on they cannot be separated a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth so now he's continuing to to describe christ he says that between the elders and this throne and identified with this throne and worship later on as the one who sits on this throne is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Pointing to the symbolism of the sacrificial Lamb of the Old Testament fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. As if slain, he's standing now. He's not slain anymore. He was slain as the marks of crucifixion in his hand. But he's standing now as if slain, now reigning, now ruling over all. We learned that in the last part of the first chapter of Revelation. He has seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, you do you think that's literal? You think that if Jesus were to appear here today, he'd have seven horns in his head and seven eyes in his head? No. I mean, there wouldn't be anything attractive about him. I mean, it'd scare the daylights out of him. My grandson was at our house last night, and we have sitting upon one of our pieces of furniture this carved little angel. And it looks like a little angel sitting there on this... Uh, cabinet and uh charlie couldn't rest until that angel was gone i mean it scared him to death he wouldn't look at it he'd close his eyes he said i just can't be here with that the thing sitting on that bit on that uh cabinet well can you imagine if that little angel had seven eyes and seven horns what a little boy would do well the point is this is not a literal description remember that all these things have symbolic significance. So what are seven horns? Well, we've seen over and over again, we will continue to see that seven is a perfect number, that seven is a very sacred number in the uh, uh, Old Testament calendar. And it, it symbolized perfection and completion. And horns were a symbol of power. I mean, you see a big bull charging towards you with these horns. And the horn, horns in the Old Testament were symbols of mighty power. So what you have in these seven horns on, on the head of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the root of David, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah, is a symbol of the mighty, invincible, irresistible power of the victorious, sovereign Christ. There is no power to match his, not even Caesar's. He also has seven eyes. What does it say about these seven eyes? Seven eyes. There are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We've seen this figure more than once already. To say that he has seven eyes is to say that he has perfect, complete vision. That nothing escapes his glance. He, uh, the Holy Spirit is universal and powerful in his activity. He was sent from the throne to accomplish the Lamb's royal purposes with irresistible force. The Lamb's kingdom will advance and nothing can stop it, not even Rome. So there you have the picture of the one and only one that can open this book and and govern history and administer the blessings and curses of God upon the church and its enemies. What did he do? Verse 7, and he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It would be audacious, blasphemous, and deadly for any of us to take anything out of the hand of the sovereign God that sits on that throne. How dare we even think of it? The only person who dared to come before the throne and take a book out of God's hand is the Son of God Himself. Now, notice what happened. And when He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then they sang a song again. And then there's three great hymns that come up here between now and the end of the verse. But chapter, but notice about these uh, elders. They had a harp in their hand. That was what they used to sing God's praises. So you see, for those dear beloved Christian friends of ours who don't believe in musical instruments, in the worship of God. Here the elders sang the worship of uh, praises of God with harps in their hands. Golden bowls full of incense. Incense in the Old Testament. There was a, a, a altar of, an altar of incense in the temple. And it was symbolic of two things. It was symbolic of the prayers of God's people going up as the smoke of the incense goes up into heaven. But we're going to see in, in uh, Revelation 8 that incense was also a symbol of the intercessions of Christ. And it was the sweet smell and aroma of the intercessions of Christ that makes our prayers and our intercessions acceptable to the Lord. We'll get to that when we get to the 8th chapter of Romans. So here again they are singing, and they sing three hymns. So let's see here. All right, the first hymn is in verse 8, sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders who've all fallen down before the Lamb in worship of Him. Now notice they're worshiping the Lamb of God as God. Here's a great verse to read to your Jehovah Witness friends. The Lamb of God is to be worshipped as God, because He is God. Having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and it's purchased for God with thy blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. All right, now it says that the angels, uh, the 24 elders, and the four living creatures, that is the cherubim, sing a new song. Now, this idea of newness occurs time and again in the book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem, a new name, a new song, everything having to do with this new age, a new day that the Lord Jesus Christ brought on the scene of history with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But now what is this new song? Well, I hear people talking about a new song. In fact, I think there's a singing group, a a contemporary Christian singing group. I don't know anything about their singing. They may be great, but it's called the new song. I got a sneaking suspicion that they named themselves new song without having read where that title originated what do you think of when you think of a new song well john the apostle did not think up this phrase he goes back to isaiah and i want you to turn to isaiah 42 and notice what the content of this new song is isaiah 42 and let's read through uh, verses 8 through 13 roman isaiah 42 8 through 13 i am the lord that's my name I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. In other words, here's a messianic prophecy. There's a new day coming, and I'm prophesying that day before it happens. So sing to the Lord a new song that fits this new day and these new things. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Silas sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So what is this new song's theme? It is that Jesus is a mighty warrior, a man of war, who raises a war cry, and who destroys and prevails against all his enemies by opening the book. You see, that's how the enemies of God are, to be, are destroyed. That's why Jesus is called a warrior. Because he is opening the book and the effect of this open book with these covenant curses based upon the righteous standard of God leads to the destruction of all those who persecute the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until all the enemies of God are put down and Christ prevails. That's the theme of the new song. But now what in Revelation 5 specifically does he emphasize about this new song? Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and its purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. The part of the song that John emphasizes which he heard the 24 angels singing and the four living creatures is about the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and its accomplishments. Now how did he get from the new song of Isaiah 42 of this great conquering warrior who prevails over all of his enemies and the death of Jesus? On the cross, if you've ever read a book called Shaka Zulu, it's worth reading. Uh, if you've ever seen the British Broadcasting Company's four or five mini- uh, time miniseries on Shaka Zulu, it's worth seeing. It's about this great pagan in South Africa in the early 1800s who was conquering. At the same time Napoleon was conquering Europe, Shaka Zulu was conquering an even greater landmass in South Africa. Uh, He's pretty much the father of the Zulu people. He was a brilliant man, a powerful man, a great warrior, a pagan man to the core. And he had a white English uh, doctor with him that uh, he liked. Because of a miracle this doctor could perform on Shaka. Shaka was getting older and there was... uh, white hair showing up in his hair and the doctor just happened to have some black liquid shoe polish so whenever he saw any gray hair in shaka's hair he'd cover with shoe, with shoe polish and shaka was convinced he was making him grow younger so he liked this this uh, english doctor who was also a christian and shaka zulu saw uh this doctor's bible And he was flipping through this old King James version of the Bible, early 1800s. And he flipped, and there was a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And that confused Shaka because he knew nothing about the Christian faith. So he asks asks his Christian father, uh, doctor, who I think name was Flynn. He asks him, "Um, "Who is this being crucified?" Because he was dying in a similar way that uh, Shaka. Killed his enemies. Shaka would erect a gigantic pole with a sharp end and then just sit him down on it. And they would be all over his kingdom like that. So he he was familiar with death by, by crucifixion. And he said, who is this? And the Christian doctor said, he's my king. Shaka said, he must not be much of a king. And the rest of his life, he tried to show that he was a greater king than Jesus. But you see, the the, the point of the English doctor is exactly right. Any sovereignty, any mediatorial kingship that Jesus has over all men, he has because of his death on the cross. That the foundation of Christ's rule and kingship is his atoning death. That the Bible says in Philippians that God, after Christ, humiliated himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, is Lord. So Christ's mediatorial lordship is rooted in his humiliating life and death, his atonement on the cross. That he has that sovereignty as a gift from Almighty God, and that's why he starts talking about the atonement of Christ in this book. Now we uh, in this hymn. Now he can uh, we can learn a great deal about the atonement of Christ. First of all, in verse nine, we can note, learn something about the nature of the atonement. And they sang a new song, saying, "Worthy art Thou to take the book and to break its seals, for Thou wast slain and its purchase." The atonement of Christ was a purchase. He purchased something. In Corinthians, we said that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body which belongs to him. So the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross in his atonement to purchase, to buy for himself as his own personal possession, someone. The next thing is the purpose of the atonement. And that is to purchase people for God. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seal, for thou wast slain, and it's purchased for God. The reason died on the, Jesus died on the cross was to purchase these people so that they might live as God's personal possession all the rest of their lives. Now notice the scope of the atonement. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and it's purchased for God with thy blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation... That uh, Jesus died not for one race, not for one nationality, not for one period of time. But he died for people from all over the world, from every age, in every time, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that in heaven there's going to be all kinds of people there in all kinds of colors. In Revelation 21, I think it is, uh, a lot of the English uh, translations speak of the time in heaven... When the, the people of God shall be there. And they chicken out of translating the word people correctly. Because in the great, best Greek manuscripts, the word is not people, but peoples. And the Greek word for peoples is ethnic. The word from which we get the et, name ethnic groups. So don't think like a lot of white Americans just, I think, automatically think. is what I used to think when I was a young boy. That when you're raised from the dead and all Christians are raised from the dead, everybody's going to be perfect and eternal and white but not so god loves pizzazz god loves color and so the bodies that were put in the grave are the same bodies they'll be raised from the dead someday some are black various shades of black some are red some are yellow some are white various shades of white that there'll be all these various ethnic groups people from every tribe tongue people and nation and age now you see the design of the atonement. Worthy art thou to take the book. Now, I'm going to misread this, this, this time. Uh, I do this sometimes in communicants class, or so I'm warning my communicants class ahead of time. I'm going to misread this verse, and I'm going to leave something out. And because people are so used to reading this verse a certain way, a lot of people don't catch it. So if you don't catch what I leave out, don't, don't admit to your ignorance. All right, here we go. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Did you catch it? Particularly those of you that don't have your Bibles, did you you catch it? I'm going to misread it again. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. It's not what it says, does it? It says worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals for thou was slain and his purchase for God with thy blood men from or people from every tribe tongue people and nation. So now understand the Lord Jesus Christ did not die on the cross and shed his precious blood for every tribe tongue people and nation. But he did shed his precious blood to purchase for God, people from, men from, people out of, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So there's one of the clearest places in the scriptures where you have the distinction between every single person in the whole wide world, the whole human race, and those within the human race that Jesus died to save. I can remember when somebody first told me that Jesus Did not die for everybody in the whole wide world without exception. But he died for his elect people to save them, all of them, and no one but them. I thought that was so terrible. I thought that was so degrading to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say that he didn't die for everybody in the whole wide world. But he died only for the elect. And then I realized that was biblical. And then I realized that my view was degrading to Christ. Let's say Jesus' intention was... To die for every single person in the whole wide world. Well, now he's God. Right? And God always accomplishes his intentions. Whatever God intends to do, he does. And if Jesus intended to save everybody in the world, the whole wide world, without exception, then since Jesus is God, everybody in the whole wide world must be saved. Whether they're Christians or not. Hitler. Hitler. Stalin all the rest you see the problem you get into with that if Jesus died to save everybody in the whole wide world and he's God then everybody in the whole wide world is saved whether you're a Christian or not whether you're good or evil and there is no distinction between good and evil and that's an intolerable thought well the other side of it now I knew better than that I knew that not everybody was going to heaven I knew there were some people in hell so my problem was this Jesus intended to save everybody in the whole wide world by his death. But there are people in hell. There are people whom he didn't save that he wanted to save and that he intended to save by his death. Poor Jesus. Jesus is a failure who cannot carry out what he intended to do so you see this idea of the unlimited design of Jesus death that he died on the cross to save everybody in the whole wide world puts you on the horns of a dilemma you either have to believe that since he's God everybody's saved no matter what and there is a group of primitive Baptists in southwest Virginia called no hellers no hellers and that's their view their view is Jesus died to save everybody and since Jesus is God, everybody's saved. There's no such thing as hell. The other horn of the dilemma is if Jesus intended to save everybody by his death and he didn't, then he's a failure. So that idea is what's dishonoring to God. The idea that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save his chosen people, those God sent him to earth to save, within the human race is what brings honor to him because he really does do it. He doesn't try to do it. He doesn't fail. What does it say? Thou was slain and it's purchase for actually purchased, not just tried to. Thou didst purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And what's the effect of that accomplished redemption? Verse 10, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Have you noticed how many times the emphasis has been made in Revelation 1, 2, 3, and 4 about dominion? About the fact that those who are elders, those who wear the white garments, those who are members of God's church were saved to rule or to exercise dominion, not Rome, not the Roman Catholic Church. But those who believed in him and were faithful to him were were predestined to exercise dominion and rule over themselves, their families, their churches, and, and eventually their communities and the whole world. And so the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which he purchased you and me for himself and put us in the position we lost in Adam, put us in the position again of exercising dominion and exercising rule now let me one last thing about atonement before we go on and we're we're about through Uh, there's a book that Arthur Pink wrote that is a great book Uh, he wrote it probably in the 30's and about 20 years ago they changed the title and the title the changed title, the new title is called, The Atonement of Christ, to try to make it more understandable. Because the old title of the book, the original title, is The Satisfaction of Christ. Now, when we started calling the death of Christ the Atonement of Christ, rather than The Satisfaction of Christ, we lost something. We started being more vague And our message started getting looser. Because the word satisfaction is what the death of Christ was. That's the best word. That's the most descriptive word. That explains the essence of Christ's death. Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's wrath. Satisfied the claims of God's law. Satisfied the uh, claims of God's justice. It was a satisfaction of God the atonement is more general. There's not one particular uh, word that translates the idea of atonement. It, it can be translated a variety of ways. But the word satisfaction, when you speak of the atonement of Christ, don't speak of the atonement of Christ. Speak of the satisfaction of Christ and make your friends ask you what in the world you mean by that word. So here we have in verse 9, the first great hymn that Christ warrior nature his conquering nature is based upon his death verse 11 we got another hymn and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures the cherubim and the elders I mean just picture all this and and listen I mean surround sound is nothing compared to this and the number of them was myriads of myriads or billions of billions taking into consideration inflation today that that's the point here I mean a thousand back in those days was about a billion today. So here you have all these countless numbers of angels, the cherubim, all the forces of creation, the elders and the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're gathered around the throne and they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So here you have a hymn of praise to Christ as exalted above all things, because he was slain. And having been slain, now he is to be praised as the source of all power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing in the universe. Third hymn, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, that's everything, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Or in Greek it can be even to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The sovereign is the creator. The Lamb of God is worshipped as the sovereign of the universe. He is worshipped as God himself. Verse 14. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, 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 Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped God so that it ends with this great confession in song that Christ is the source of all power and sovereignty that he and he alone is to be praised and worshiped that all of creation does it everything the cherubim the church Every created thing in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and the seas, everything creates him, uh, worships him. Therefore, no area of life is to be relegated to Satan or to neutrality. We must never say that any area of life belongs to Satan. We must never say that any area of life is secular. Some areas of life are sacred. Some are secular. Nope. Everything's sacred. Because everything belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Joe Blue Moon Tavern, now there was a tavern like that in West Virginia when I was growing up, except it wasn't a tavern, it was a beer joint. Joe, uh, Joe's Blue Moon Beer Joint, that piece of ground where Joe Blue Moon Beer Joint is, Calston Presbyterian Church, they're both sacred. Now what they do over there is in rebellion against the king. I hope what we do here is not in rebellion against the king. But the point is, every square inch on this planet is sacred. It belongs to King Jesus. If you were to get in a rocket ship and you go to the farthest regions of the universe and get off and there was some kind of, of dust that got on your feet, Jesus could say, that dust belongs to me. If somehow you could plumb the deep recesses of the human heart as deeply as you can get down there, Jesus says, that's mine too. Amen. That he owns everything. He is the governor of everything. He is the king of everything in heaven and earth. And therefore, persecuted, ridiculed church. You don't have anything to worry about. Nothing can go wrong as long as the Lamb is on the throne. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for this great picture. Help, Help us to believe it, particularly when time gets rough. For Christ's sake, amen. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.